So we're starting a new series for Sunday. We just finished a series that took basically the entire last year, and we went through the storyline of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, where I just kind of picked individual stories, and I kind of walked you guys through it. I skipped a lot of it. I mean, if I went through every single thing in the Bible, it would have taken a whole lot longer than a year. But I tried to give you guys at least one story from each main thrust. So now we're starting a new series. And Sunday, we're kind of designating for like stories. So we're going to be going through narrative books, whereas on Wednesdays are kind of more topical and like epistles and whatnot. But we're starting Nehemiah. And I want to start by giving you guys context. So up on the whiteboard, you're going to see like a timeline. And this is the timeline of the entire Bible. In Genesis, you have the creation of the world and the fall of man, as well as the flood. You have the Tower of Babel, where like languages and ethnicities are born. And then you have the choosing of Abraham and the origin of Israel. In Exodus, you have Israel taken out of Egypt in slavery and brought into the wilderness. And then they are led into the land of Canaan. And in Joshua, they conquer the land of Canaan. And then Judges is right after that, where Israel has no king. And they're just like doing what they want to do. And they go through these cycles of obedience, disobedience, judgment back to obedience in a downward spiral. And then after that, you have the kings, and that's Saul, David, Solomon, where the entire nation of Israel is under the kings. And then after that, it divides. And in the divided kingdom, you have northern Israel and southern Israel. And during this time, you have wicked king after wicked king after wicked king, ignoring the prophets, disregarding God, committing idolatry and sinning. And so God sends Babylon to go and conquer Israel and carry them off into exile. Well, he sends Assyria for northern Israel, Babylon for Judah, and then that's the exile. So for 70 years, Israel is in exile. They're living in Babylon and in other countries, and they're kind of taken out of their country. They're conquered. But at the end of 70 years, they return, and that's where we are. So we're in Nehemiah, and Nehemiah is one of the books that takes place in like the return period. And then after that is 400 years of silence where there's no more scripture being written. And then the New Testament starts, which is the life of Jesus in the early church. And then now we are in this age, we're in the church age. And then after that comes the events of Revelation. So we're in like the last section of history before the very end of time. But we are specifically talking about Nehemiah, which sits right here in the return. So now that you kind of have that context, we're going to talk about Nehemiah. And Nehemiah is a really cool book because it follows a single person who's just faithful. And Nehemiah has a unique opportunity and a unique responsibility, but we get to kind of see like, okay, what does Nehemiah do? How can we follow the example of Nehemiah? How can I be someone who was like Nehemiah in my own life? And that's what we're going to be talking about. So this is the first section we're doing Nehemiah 1 and 2, and we're going to be talking about prayer. How do you pray? Because who knows what prayer is? What is prayer? Yeah, like you're talking to God. So that's essentially what prayer is. Like prayer is literally talking to God. Generally speaking, you're asking him for things. And so in the life of a Christian, prayer is something that you're supposed to do frequently. You know, Paul says to pray without ceasing. And we have examples throughout the Bible of people who prayed and what God did as a result. And Nehemiah is an example of faithful prayer. And so we're going to be talking about if you want to pray properly in your life, then you're going to need to know, like, what does faithful prayer look like? So we're going to read through the entire you know, section, not all at once, but we're just going to go through this story. And if you want to follow along in verse one, it says the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, Hakaliah, Hakaliah. Now it happened in the months, in the month of Chislev in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, 
that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah, and I, and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The walls of Jerusalem are broken down, and its gates are destroyed with fire. So real quick, what's the state of Jerusalem right now? Not good. And this is in a situation where Nehemiah specifically talks about the third group of people that go from exile back into Israel. So things like the temple has been rebuilt. The houses in in Jerusalem have not been rebuilt, but the wall is completely destroyed. So this is after 70 years of Jerusalem being desolate. After the uh, stuff that happens in 2 Kings, which we talked about in the Habakkuk series, where Nebuchadnezzar comes in and completely destroys the place, like everything. Temple, completely destroyed. The houses, burned down. The walls, completely destroyed. Like, Jerusalem has been desolate, and it's still kind of in that state. So, Nehemiah hears this, and what would your response be? Like, who, like, first of all, what ethnicity is Nehemiah? Any guesses? He's Middle Eastern, yeah. Specifically, he's a... Jew. Nehemiah is a Jew. So like Jerusalem is his city. This is going to be like if someone were talking to us and they were saying, yeah, Washington DC got completely destroyed. The White House is just ashes. Each of the Capitol buildings are completely destroyed. And you know what? The entire place is just smoldering ash. Like would that kind of make you feel bummed? Like your capital has been destroyed. (laughs) Yeah, bummed is probably a weak word for it. But like this is like someone talking about Nehemiah's home country. And he never lived there, but he feels this like sense of connection with it because he's a Jew. And the Jews care about Jerusalem far more than we care about Washington, D.C. I can tell you that. Um, but this is going to, like, what do you think Nehemiah's response in this situation is going to be? Oh, that's cool. Oh, that's cool. How's he going to feel? Is he going to be, be like, he's going to be... Probably going to, like, go to there. Maybe. If it was me, I'd be like, oh, that's sad. It is sad. But Nehemiah, like... like do anything about it. But you wouldn't even, you wouldn't really do anything about it. Which, I mean, for us, again, we are Americans. I don't think we care as much about Washington, D.C. as, like, they care about Jerusalem. But, you know. But Nehemiah's response in verse 4, he says, As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenants and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you, even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. I'm going to stop there. But Nehemiah, he's praying. He's broken. He's talking to God and he's making a request. He's saying, God, let us come back to Jerusalem. And he's referring when he talks about the disobedience, he's talking about judges. He's talking about kings. He's talking about the divided kingdom. Like those spots in the timeline is just the entire history of Israel in Canaan, most often disregarding God serving idols, worshiping idols, sinning, and not listening when God sends prophets to them. So Nehemiah is referring to that. 
But the first thing that you guys need to know about prayer is that if you're going to pray properly, then you need to pray with knowledge. Is that a K? Yes. It's a W. It's a K. How, how a W? No, oh, I forgot no. the W. <laughs> we. <laughs> There's a W right there. Just do a carrot. Um, I can spell, I promise. But if you're going to pray, you need to pray with knowledge. Like, there's actually a foundation in what Nehemiah is praying to God. First of all, he clearly knows the history. But in the verses, that, like 8 and 9, where he says, the words that you commanded your servant Moses, Nehemiah is referring to something. So, the law of Moses. Who knows? Which five books are the law of Moses? I saw Adelaide's hand first. Leviticus is one of them. Alex, you got the rest? The first five books. They are the first five books. That is correct. So what are they? Genesis, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's right. Yeah, so those are the first five books of the Bible, the Law of Moses. And in the Law of Moses, in Deuteronomy, Moses, before they go into Canaan, he's explaining to them, like, hey, you're given the opportunity to follow God or not follow God, and here's what's going to happen to you. So in 28, verses 1 through 3, Moses says to Israel, If you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth, and all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you, if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city, and blessed shall you be in the field. And he goes on, and he just keeps talking about all the blessings that God's going to give them, if they're obedient. But then after that, in Deuteronomy 28, 15, and 16, Moses then shifts gears and he says, But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city, and cursed shall you be in the field. And he continues after that with all of the cursings that are coming for them. And so he's saying you have options. But then after Moses lays out the blessing and the curse, he says... In Deuteronomy 31 through 4, And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse, which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today, with all your heart and with all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you, and he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you, If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will take you. So Moses is saying, you guys are going into Canaan. If you're faithful and obedient, God's going to bless you. If you're disobedient, God's going to curse you. And then he says, after laying that out, he says, you're going to experience blessing. You're also going to experience curse. Like Moses says, you guys are going to go into Canaan and you're going to be sinful. But after you've been sinful and after God has removed you, If you return to God, he will forgive you and he will bring you back. So with that in mind, this is the section of scripture that Nehemiah is talking about. Which, if you read again in verse 8 and 9, it says, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven. Notice he's like almost literally quoting Deuteronomy. From there I will gather them and bring them to the place where I have chosen to make my name dwell there. So when Nehemiah is praying to God, he's praying and he's like literally quoting the Bible in some places. But something you got to think about is that we ask God for a lot of things. How do you know what you're supposed to ask God for? For example, I'm going to tell you guys a story. 
let's say for example that like you are with your parents and you see this really good looking apple just on the table and you're like man that's an apple and you're hungry and you want to eat the apple and you're like mom can i have that apple and then your mom's like no and you're thinking to yourself goodness gracious how mean of my mom to not give me that apple doesn't she realize that i'm hungry and that i want that apple and that apple would probably taste really good like what's wrong with her yeah Well, here's the kicker. So let's say, for example, that as you're upset with your mom for not letting you eat the apple, that you go to your mom and you're like, so why aren't you giving me that apple? And she's like, well, because Adelaide, it's a wax apple. I'd still eat it. <laughs> I'd still eat it. <laughs> so like, that's a wax apple. If you were to eat that, not only would it not taste good, but it wouldn't be good for you. It'd hurt your stomach. It's fake. And you didn't realize that it was a fake apple, but your mom did. And so if your mom had given you the apple and let you eat it, would that have been a very kind thing to do? No. But how often do we ask God for things that are bad for us? And then God, because he's nice, says no. And so how do you know what's good for you? How do you know what you should be praying for so that you can ask God for the things that he wants to give you? Like how can you know that you should ask your mom for an apple and not a wax apple, right? And that's by reading the Bible. For example, like this doesn't mean that you're only allowed to pray for spiritual things. This means that you can also pray for material things. You pray for the things that you want. You pray for the things that you care about. And how do I know that you can pray for your for material things, for your needs? Any guesses how I know that? Because the Bible says it. That's exactly right. In Matthew 6, 11, where Jesus is teaching people how to pray, he says, give us this day our daily bread. Like he says, when you're praying, ask God for your daily bread. So if you want to know how you should be able to pray and what you should pray for, then you need to pray with knowledge. And where are you going to get that knowledge? Bible. The Bible. That's right. So part of prayer is reading the Bible. It's like having a conversation, but only, be, but like only talking. You would never do that. In the same way, you're not going to have a conversation with God where you're the only one talking. You need to get his word. You need to go to his word, right? Know what he's going to say. But that's not all. Because once you're praying with knowledge, you also need to pray with faith. Let's see if I can actually spell this one. Hooray. Okay. My spelling is better than that of a fifth grader, hopefully. Okay. So pray with knowledge and pray with faith. Because in verse 11, Nehemiah says, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. Who knows what a cupbearer is? Coco, I saw your hand first. Um, it's someone that like tests the food or water before mm -hmm. the king drinks it so that he doesn't get poisoned. Yeah. That's right. So if you're the cupbearer, you're like right next to the king. You're literally all the time right next to the king. Yes? I see an error in that plan because wouldn't, shouldn't you eat it like the morning before? Because sometimes poisons, they don't work immediately. I don't know. One way or another, something happened. But cupbearers, yeah, the cupbearer was the person that gave the wine to the king. And you were kind of like in a trusted position. And you actually had a relationship with the king because you were around him all the time. So Nehemiah is praying to God and he's saying, hey, Jerusalem is desolate. Let me have favor in the eyes of the king. And then in, verse two, in chapter 2, it goes on to what Nehemiah does. 
in the month of Nisan, in the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, then wine, uh, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing that you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. And then I was very much afraid, and I said to the king, Let the king live forever. It's like if you say, Long live the king. Why should, not, why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? And then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven and I said to the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And we're going to stop there. Something that I think is really interesting in this is that in chapter one, Nehemiah says, give me favor in the sight of the king. And then in chapter two, who starts the conversation? The king. Was it Nehemiah? No. And yet Nehemiah was the one who went into that interaction, hoping that a conversation would happen. But Nehemiah, after he prays to God, he isn't like trying to force God's hand and create the situation on his own, but he's kind of like, okay, this is going to happen. I don't need to make it happen. I've already prayed. I've already asked for God's help. And when the king actually spoke to him, it says that he was kind of afraid and he like shot up a quick prayer at that moment too. But Nehemiah trusted that God would be able to work out his plan without Nehemiah's help. And that's faith. And that's not to say that in every situation when you pray, you should just sit around until something happens. Like, obviously, we actively do things in life, and part of prayer is being obedient, even when you don't hear a response kind of thing. But Nehemiah isn't forcing God's hand. And in James chapter 5, verse 16 and 18, something that I think we should think about is that the prayer of a righteous person has great power in its working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. And then he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. And James is talking about just the fact that when you pray, God actually hears you. And you don't pray for no reason, expecting nothing to happen, but you pray knowing that God himself can work out whatever it is you need. And if we're going to talk about miracles, like making it not rain for three years, that's pretty impressive. But what Nehemiah is doing is actually more impressive. Like, do you guys, uh, what do you guys know about World War II? Adelaide. Yeah. You got the Axis and the Allies. And then the Axis, one of the main nations in the Axis was uh, Germany. And Germany was, you know, doing the Holocaust, killing all the Jews. What was another nation that we had to fight with? Yes. The Japanese. The Japanese. Yep, that's right. Japanese, the Italians. What did the Japanese do to get us into the war? They bombed Pearl Harbor. They bombed Pearl Harbor. That's right. So at the end of World War II, one of the things... Yes. So at the end of World War II, one of the things that happened is that Japan was no longer allowed to have a military. So even now, Japan is not able to have a military that's capable of invasion. So they're allowed to have like stuff to defend themselves. They have like a defense force, yeah, but they're not allowed to have a large enough military that enables them to conquer or attack anyone else. And that's partially because of what happened in World War II. So imagine for a moment, yes? 
So we don't talk as much about what Japan did during World War II, but the stuff that Japan did was actually brutal. So a lot of times when we talk about World War II and that era, we give a lot of attention to the Holocaust, mm -hmm. but there were all kinds of things happening during that time. We have things like in the 20th century, things like Mao, things like Stalin, and also the stuff that Japan was doing in World War II, which was brutal. So there's kind of more to the story that we hear. But anyways, all that to say, that's like historical context. Um, imagine for a moment that after like the bombing of Pearl Harbor, all of the stuff that happens in World War II, if Japan came to the United States in like 1970, 45 years after, let's say that they come to the United States, or did I say 45, I meant 35. Uh, so they come to the United States and like the leader of Japan says to the president, hey, is it okay if I like build up my military? Can, can I like build up my military to be an invasion powerful force again? Can I like, you know, get all of that right back? What, what do you think the president would say? No, absolutely not. Because why are you trying to build up your military? Uh, are we about to have a repeat of what I just had to deal with? It's like, I just cleaned up your mess, you're about to make it another one? So that's pretty insane, right? But the thing that we need to think about is that when Nehemiah is talking about the walls of Jerusalem, back then, a city's walls was a massive part of its ability to do military stuff, to go to war. Because if you had walls, it meant that any country that came against you had to siege you for like years just to conquer you. And so it made it really difficult for other people to conquer you. And it also kind of gave you some safety if you wanted to go out and conquer other people. Because even if they force you back, you can go back to a city with walls. So when Nehemiah is saying, can I go to Jerusalem and rebuild the walls? He's essentially saying, can I go to Jerusalem and make it really hard for you to conquer us if we rebel? And Israel was a nation with a history of rebelling and at one time was an extraordinarily militarily powerful nation. So Nehemiah is talking to the king and he's saying, hey, is it okay if I like build up our military capability? I'm really bummed about the state of my city. Like, what do you think the king would say? No. no. That's the reasonable answer. <laughs> The reasonable answer is to say, no, we had to conquer you. You've been rebellious since you were conquered. Like Babylon conquered Israel and then Israel rebelled and they had to conquer Israel again. And so a, a normal king would say, absolutely not. And so Nehemiah is making this request and this is not at all the kind of request that you would expect to be successful. In fact, you would expect Nehemiah to potentially be punished for doing this kind of thing. Like there might actually be penalties for saying, hey, is it okay if I build up my military capabilities against you? So Nehemiah is acting with faith. Like he's prayerful and then he has faith. But the last thing that you guys need to think about when you pray is that you need to pray with readiness. Let's see if I can spell that. Hey, okay. My spelling has gotten better over the course of today. So you need to pray with readiness. Because if you, for example, let's say, you're like, hey, can I get an Xbox? And then your parents are like, yeah, we'll get you an Xbox, sure. And so your parents have told you they're gonna get you an Xbox. They've said that they're gonna give you the Xbox by like the Monday after. And then you're like, okay, awesome, cool. Um, and then you start like buying games for your Xbox. Because you, do you have the Xbox yet? 
No. But you're buying games, why? Because you're going to get one. Because you have faith that your parents are going to be honest with you. But let's say that like you have someone who offers you an Xbox game and then you actually turn it down. You're like, nah, man, I don't have an Xbox and I'm not actually expecting to get one, so I don't need that game. Give it to someone else who can use it. What does that demonstrate? That you're not faith, that you're not having faith, that you're like, yeah, I could get this Xbox game, but I'm not even going to be able to use it because odds are my parents aren't going to get me that Xbox that they said they were going to give me. So like that demonstrates a lack of faith and it's not good for you to interact with God like that because when Nehemiah goes to the king, the king then says, and the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah and let a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber and to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked for the good hand of my God was upon me. So this is actually even crazier than the situation that we talked about with like Japan and America, because not only is the king saying, yeah, you can go rebuild the walls. He's saying, I'll pay for the walls, which there's a joke in there somewhere. I'm not going to make it, but you know, there's a joke in there somewhere about another country paying for walls. So, <laughs> so the king literally says, I will pay for you to become more militarily powerful. Like that's wild. And you want to talk about miracles, like what's, this is a pretty miraculous thing that happens in the Old Testament. And no, you know, no pillar of fire starts coming down, no plagues of Egypt are happening, nothing crazy and supernatural, but I'd say that this is definitely the working of God. And this is the way that God works in our lives too. We don't see miracles happening all around us, but we still have God acting with providence, taking care of us and doing things like this giving you favor in the eyes of someone that you never would have expected to get it from. And so Nehemiah, after he's prayed, he's ready. He's like, okay, you're asking me what I need. Nehemiah knows where he's going to go. He knows how long he's going to be there. He's able to give the king answers to these questions, and he does. And as soon as he gives permission, in verse 9, Nehemiah says, Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen, but when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite's uh, servant, but when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite's servant heard this, that's a weird sentence, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So he comes and he comes into opposition. He has people in the area that do not want him to be successful even at the outset. And what does Nehemiah do in verse 17 and 18? Then I said to, so Nehemiah goes to the people in Israel and uh, to the Jews. And he says, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them the hand of my God that had been upon me for good. And also the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us arise and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. So after Nehemiah prays, 
Nehemiah immediately is willing to go to Jerusalem amidst massive opposition, which only gets worse over the course of the book of Nehemiah, and he starts working. And sometimes you got to understand that when you pray for God, when you pray to God to give you something, you need to actually be ready for him to give it to you. Like if you say, God, please give me patience, God's going to give you the opportunity to grow in patience. And you need to be ready for that. If you say, God, give me a car, you need to be ready to receive the car. You know, you need to actually set yourself up where you're prepared to receive the things that God were that you pray for from God. But again, if you say, God, please let me fly, and then you jump off a cliff, that's not at all the kind of faith that you're supposed to have. Because what's supposed to inform the things that you're asking for? The Bible. And so it goes right back to verse to the first point. You're supposed to read the Bible and understand what you should be praying for. And then you need to have faith that God is able to answer your prayers and will answer your prayers if you're praying for the correct things. And then you need to be ready for God to answer your prayers and you need to be ready to be obedient in whatever circumstance as soon as those prayers are answered and even if they aren't. And then how do you know what to be ready for or what readiness looks like? Well, then it goes right back to knowledge. So you should know what you've got to pray for. You've got to have faith when you pray for it. You need to be ready for the answer. And then more knowledge, more faith, more readiness. And it just kind of goes in that cycle. But this is exactly how we're supposed to pray. So with that in mind, we've seen the example of Nehemiah and we're going to be following the example of Nehemiah for, you know, a little while. And I'm actually really excited for this study. I think it's going to be an interesting thing. But let's bow our heads, pray it out. We'll do some small groups. Lord, thank you that you don't just give us instructions, but you give us examples of how those instructions are supposed to work themselves out. You don't just teach us how to pray. You don't just tell us what we're supposed to pray for, but you give us examples of people like Nehemiah who prayed properly. Lord, you give us examples of how your principles work themselves out in normal situations. And I pray that you would help us to, as we read about Nehemiah and as we learn from Nehemiah, that we would be applying these things to our lives and that we would be becoming more effective as Christians as we see other faithful people that we can follow the example of. I pray these things in the name of our King Jesus Christ. Amen.